I am always suspicious. Like I am very careful who I talk to and who talks to me, whether offline or online. And I try to maintain a sort of a distance. I have also been lucky to work across border. I have worked on albinism in Tanzania too. So I know the realities of people with albinism. I know my friends who have survived the attacks. I know my friends who have also lost their lives to the attacks. So the reality is that I could be next. So that means you like being more careful and vigilant and maintaining more close-knit circles of you can trust. And that is the message to like all persons with albinism. Stick your neck out. The weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation. Skin color both unites and divides us. Whether you live in Germany, East Africa, Japan or Cuba, the color of your skin shapes your identity and opportunities. A person's skin color can have a huge impact on their everyday life. Welcome to the podcast to restore your faith in humanity. Welcome to Stick Your Neck Out. In East Africa, living with albinism can be a death sentence. Adults, teenagers, but especially children and infants fall victim of brutal attacks. Unfortunately, the high incidence of albinism exists among countries where it is most dangerous for them to live. Poverty striking, medically untreated, and even haunted, those with albinism in East Africa live in constant fear. My guest today is a Kenyan woman who has albinism. Jane Waitera is leading a movement of acceptance and education as the founder of Positive Exposure Kenya, an advocacy group working to support those affected by albinism. Welcome, Jane, to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me on this session. Yes, of course. Jane, what are the main challenges of being born with albinism in Kenya? I would start by saying the biggest challenges starts with the ignorance about the condition, whereby a lot of people have no correct information about albinism and they believe in the misconceptions that have been constructed around the condition. So besides the misconceptions, we also come to the health-related challenges that come along with albinism. Because, you know, being a recessive genetic condition that is caused by lack of melanin, it means by default persons born with albinism have melanin deficiency. And we know melanin plays a big role in protecting our bodies from the skin to the eyes, from the harmful UV rays. So with that, it, it therefore means that for persons with albinism, you have to really take care of your skin so that exposure to the sun does not uh, have adverse effects like skin cancer, which is eventually fatal. And also when the UV rays get into your eyes, that means your vision becomes more impaired. Eh? So I would say like those are like the three main challenges, like the skin challenge, which has a solution, of course, by wearing protective clothing and wearing sunscreen and staying less outdoors. And then with the eyes, it also means that you have wear prescription glasses eh, that are recommended by an ophthalmologist that are also photochromatic so that you improve your vision, but you also protect your eyes from the damages 
of the UV rays. Eh? And then when it comes to the misconceptions, these misconceptions not now actually lead to the deep-rooted stigma and violations of our human rights. And that's why when you talk about us living in threats and like, you know, our lives being in danger, it is because those that believe that our bodies have special charms or potions are the ones who perpetrate the violations. And this is just because they don't understand it. The only thing that differentiates a person with albinism like me from them is only the lack of melanin. You are totally right. I mean, people with albinism have been in great danger in East African countries. Can you be a bit more specific about the horror scenarios that people with albinism face, especially in Kenya? So it's an African belief that, uh, a lot of people believe that being born with albinism is a bad omen or is it's not something good. So basically, when then you find yourselves born in these societies, there's less acceptance of you. And besides the less acceptance, there's also bad beliefs and bad myths that are related to albinism. For example, there are people who will say if you have sex with a woman with albinism and you have HIV, you get cured, which is not true. There are also people who believe that using our body parts, like if you use part of my bones or my hair or my skin for witchcraft or for rituals, you will that like my body parts can ensure that that charm gives you good luck and riches and wealth and popularity and all those kind of things. So you see, it's a very misguided belief, but sadly, a lot of people subscribe to it. And because of that bad belief, they continue to mutilate and mutate and cut down persons with albinism for these body parts to be used in rituals. So you see, there's also the danger of, even if it's not happening, for example, in Kenya, there's the danger of human trafficking where you find that persons with albinism and their body parts are trafficked across borders. Eh? And that is why when you talk about the challenges that persons with albinism face, you cannot speak Kenya alone or Tanzania alone or Uganda or Malawi alone. We have to look for a common solution because these are practices that are very common in almost all African countries. And these beliefs also lead to, if I can't find a person with albinism to mutilate in Tanzania, why not cross to Kenya and get this person and bring them to the witch doctor? Yes, so you course. see, we have to look at borderless solutions and united solutions for Africans with albinism. If an albino is sacrificed or used for a certain purpose, let's say, I mean, be it healing powers or similar, and this purpose is not achieved, Are there reprisals against albinos? I mean, it's how do the people react? You see, the thing is that there are people who will condemn it, but there are also the same people at night who will go to the witch doctors. You know, I say we are like a cultured society where we really believe in our cultural orientations and cultural backgrounds. And therefore, as much as during the day, we will say, oh, let's preserve these people with albinism and let's not attack them. And then I have a challenge and I go to a witch doctor and he asks for the body part of a person with albinism. 
the temptation to still sacrifice human beings for personal gratification and personal gains is still there. So I think it's really a problem that is deep-rooted to our culture and beliefs that we subscribe to. And shifting that mindset is not something that takes a day or two because it's something that people have grown up believing in. But I can promise you that gradually things are changing and it gets better with a lot of education and awareness on albinism and really educating communities about the facts. You know, when you talk about the facts, we only talk about the truth about albinism. And everything else that is said outside the truth is not true, you see? So it's really a lot of work to do, like broader public awareness and sensitization to ensure that even those that believe that they have solutions in our body parts, one day will still look at us and see us as human beings equal to them, only short of melanin. Yeah, you say before, albinism is a genetic deficiency of melanin that affects skin color. People with albinism have little or no melanin in their skin, hair and eyes. Therefore, most of them are visually impaired or in a few cases even completely blind. In African countries, the number of people with albinism is higher than elsewhere in the world. And of course, a person with pale skin and light hair stands out. Jane, as a kid, were you aware of your skin color? How did people treat you? So I would say because like in the village where I grew up, I was the only one who looked like me. It was quite clear for me from a very young age that I was different because I looked different. But that was not even like me looking different was not the issue. But you see, you could tell like how people would stare at me. The things they would say after seeing me made me realize I was different. I look different and I look different in a bad way. You know what I mean? Because, you know, like when crowds come and they all want to see you, they want to pinch your skin and see it turn red and white, you know, and others will also say like, use like names like, you know, like ghost, you know, like, oh, mzungu, mzungu is the term they use to refer to white people. But, you know, like there's a way you can call me mzungu Mzungu is the name we use in Kiswahili to refer to a white person. But the way they say that Mzungu, not with a happy face. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. for me, I knew they made me realize I was different and different in a bad way. And the only place like really I felt loved and appreciated was at home in my grandmother's house. That leads actually to my next question. Do, would you mind to go back and tell a bit about your story? I mean, how did your family members react when they noticed that the newborn little Jane didn't have the same skin color as her mother? How was that? Yeah, it's interesting because these are stories that I have been told. And I am also lucky that I also got to hear the story from my own biological mother, who I only have less than five years relationship with. So she tells me like when I was born, eh, the midwife who was helping her deliver me actually screamed. You know, like how labor process is. The head comes out and I think when this midwife saw white head and a black woman delivering a baby with a white head, eh, the lady actually screamed. The midwife, eh, 
she screamed and asked my mother, what is that? And on top of asking her that, like, what is that? You know, it's not, it's like, my mother actually tells me, like, she was wondering, what have I delivered? You know, like, because the midwife said, what is that? Appearing very shocked. And to add to the salt, she ran out and called other nurses to come see that. Oh, my God. You see? And my mom was a teenage mother. She was very young when she got me. So you can imagine, even by the time she was getting to see her baby, who was me, she was already very sure something is wrong with my baby. So the stigma began right there in the labor room because of the person who was handling the bathing process. And for my mom also now, you see, when she got me first, she's a young mother. She had no information or nobody actually provided information about albinism she literally like uh, left me you know like because now when she also went home now everybody in the neighborhood was coming to see this white baby and you know now when they see that they think your 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 parent like slept with a white man and things like that are really like the talk of town and those that also understand, like it's albinism, they say this family is cursed and it's a bad thing. So for my teenage mother, I think the society's pressure on albinism and the lack of awareness and everything else that went on fueled her leaving me behind. So that, you know, she like, and even for me, I think as a teenager who first gets a child and then I get a child who looks different. And then the society sees everything wrong with that child. Uh, living would have been an option, you know. So I, I literally tried to fit in her shoes and realized like, maybe that was the best option she had. And I was born more than 30 years ago. So you can imagine, even today we have cases where parents uh, abandon their children with albinism in the 21st century. So you can imagine how bad it was then that years ago. But still, you know, we focus our interventions on the primary points of contact. For example, when we do our community awareness, we start with those midwives because those are the first people to see the child, even before the mother. So if a midwife understands albinism, she will be able to handle the bundle of joy that is born to the mother with affirmation that, this is a child and your child only lacks melanin versus when instead of screaming and running away and appearing not informed, you see? So it's really like targeting the people who come into contact with albinism first, like the midwives, the teachers, the community elders, you know, the family, the extended family circles, you know, those targeting those people, if they understand albinism, then they become your best advocate. Because when every other person thinks there's something wrong with your family, they will tell them, no, this child only lacks melanin. Otherwise, nothing else is short of them being a human being. Understanding is the key. You were the only albino kid in your hometown. Still, you reached so much and became such a strong personality. How did you identify with? How did you manage to accept yourself just the way you are? I can say I really struggled for the first like 18 years of my life. Eh? And because of that, I was always, I was always burying my head like 
bending down and a lot of people would know me as that shy girl with the albinism, you know, because I would wear glasses and wear a hat and I would always cover my face with the bigger part of the hat so that I couldn't look at people. And even every time I thought like my self-esteem is coming up eh, and then somebody calls me like a bad name that I know they called me, the self-esteem would be dismantled. But then I got to a point in my life where I had to start defining me. I always wished as a child, like no other child is made to feel the way I felt. Eh? So for me, I made a personal decision to start defining me. And by that, I started understanding albinism. Like I started looking around the internet like this is albinism. And because of albinism, I don't have proper vision and I cannot change that. And because of albinism, I have to stay more indoors, you know, just trying to understand the condition itself. Then I accepted that. And then I started now when you tell me, oh, why are you still not seeing and you're wearing glasses? I would be able to explain. Like my condition, even if I wear glasses, I cannot correct my vision to 100%. You see? Yeah. yeah. What was your turning point? When did you decide to start fighting this segregation people with albinism have in Africa? My turning point was between 2008 and 2009. Because in 2008, I went to a college where I was doing my teaching course. Eh? And in this college, I found other people with albinism. And you can tell how uncomfortable that is because you're meeting such people for the first time. You've grown up thinking you're the only one who looks like you. And at 16, 17 years old, 18, you find other people who look like you. And I gained the courage to talk to my college mates who had albinism and you know when they told their stories their stories were my story you know like there was some sort of a common narrative like they either had been discriminated rejected you know all the challenges that I had gone through my friends and peers had also gone through that and for me I, I realized this is something that we really need to change you see and change the narrative for children who would be born with albinism after us. Eh? So in the same time in college, it's the time I also got the opportunity to apply for the social entrepreneurship training that was being offered in India. And it was more for me now, that was really my turning point for sure, for sure. Because in 2008, the killings were really on the highest speed. It was the first time the killings were reported. And every time in the news, there was always like somebody with albinism has been killed. So my opportunity to go to India came at a time first. It was not safe for me to remain in Kenya. But also it was a time for me to be away in Kenya, but think of a solution for my friends back in Kenya. You get what I mean? Yes, yes, so I understand. So I decided to, yeah, when I went to India, I went to India for the social entrepreneurship training with a purpose to come back to Kenya and change perceptions around Albania. Okay, you're talking about the Kantari Entrepreneurship Yes, the Kantari Entrepreneurship School. Eh? By then it was called the International Institute for Social Entrepreneurship. Eh? So my time in India was really my turning point because I spent more time understanding me and understanding albinism 
and coming up with solutions that would work for my albinism community back at home. Okay. And, and that is how my awareness and advocacy organization was born. It was born to change how people saw albinism to something good. Yeah. Positive, and that's, we are talking about positive exposure. Kenya is this, this uh, non-profit organization that deals with the well-being of the albinism community by challenging the stigma, fear, and discrimination in relation to albinism and supporting positive social change in Kenya and across other African countries. How exactly are you doing this? So we do this through, like, we have, like, a three-pillar approach, eh? And the three-pillar approach is on thematic areas. So the first one is on albinism awareness and advocacy. And through albinism awareness and advocacy, we run different programs. The first is, like, understanding albinism. It's, like, the very program that we run where we work with communities, new parents, opinion shapers and everybody else to ensure that they understand albinism. You see? And then after the understanding albinism on the awareness bit, we also now develop other creative forms of advocacy where we make albinism the, the big thing, you know, like the topic. So we have done projects around, like we've done a climb for albinism. Climb for albinism was a project we did in 2018 where we saw six African women climbing Mount Kilimanjaro to raise awareness on Africa's highest point. So you see, like demystifying and breaking down barriers that the society has put on us. We've also been able to come up with a, a mobile application called Albinism and I. And in this app, you are able to find factual, verified, and up-to-date information about albinism. That means a midwife who is in the remotest part of Kenya and has access to a mobile phone can easily get to that app and provide factual information to a mother who has just delivered a child with albinism. And then the second pillar is on socioeconomic empowerment. And in this one now, we are able to focus more on, I know, I don't know where the, the relationship is, but you find a lot of people born with albinism also come from low economic backgrounds. Eh? And therefore, they are not only unable to meet their basic needs like food, shelter, and clothing, but they're also in, not in a position to meet their albinism-specific needs. Things like sunscreen, things like prescription glasses, these that will make sure they live normal life expectancy like their peers without albinism, you see? So with the socioeconomic empowerment, we focus more on building enterprises and building business skills and all these vocational skills that we give to those impacted by albinism to be able to generate income for themselves. So we run business trainings and seed capital initiatives and things like that to ensure that persons with albinism run sustainable income generating avenues that are able to help them meet their albinism needs, but also their other basic needs. And then the last one is on social welfare. And on this one, we look at existing government schemes that are there in the country and existing government structures like education, like health, and all those other 
social services that persons with albinism need to access to be able to like have like access to proper education, have access to proper health and have access to the basic social services. Yeah. Okay, that sounds sounds awesome. One of the goals of positive exposure is that people, albinos and non-albinos, overcome their prejudices. Jane, how do you manage that? So this we are doing through one. You see, with the advocacy work, eh, we have a model where we do both self advocacy and the broader advocacy. Self advocacy is where we take persons with albinism themselves through self awareness, self acceptance, self esteem and self-advocacy trainings so that they can speak for themselves, yeah? So that I don't have to be in a classroom to tell the, the teacher the child in their class cannot see. That child is able to tell the teacher I cannot see because I have albinism and my vision is not 100%, you see? So that's really like the self-advocacy model. Eh? And then the other broader advocacy is where we either influence policies where we advocate for persons with albinism to be included in the inclusion conversation, and also where we talk to key opinion shapers or key actors, for example, looking at the issue of gender and albinism, education and albinism, the intersectionalities of these issues, and trying to ensure that if it is education, Does the curriculum cover persons with albinism? If not, we make recommendations to the ministry in charge of the curriculum so that they ensure that as much as they make reasonable accommodations for people who can't see totally who are blind, they also make accommodations for persons with albinism who have low vision and all they need is large cream. You see? Yeah, okay. Also talking to government to ensure that they ensure, like, for example, when I access health, I am also able to access sunscreen as an essential need for me. So you see, it's really like more of both high level at policy level and advocacy at the community level. So really like both ways. Okay, and it's, it's working? I mean, you how do the people react? I mean, if... if... It is really working. Yes, okay. I can say that, like... You know, when I was growing up, the conversation about albinism was never something that anybody started because it was a taboo. It is not even something you're supposed to speak about, you see. No. But currently, you see persons with albinism in different spheres of life, taking their rightful places in the society. You'll see a doctor with albinism, a politician with albinism. You know, you will find us in many places. And then you'll also find media houses talking about albinism. You see what I mean? Even for a podcast, I, I mean, podcast is the newest thing in town, you know? Like, it's a very latest new media, but we are talking about albinism, meaning it is going to reach a lot of people. Something that was never talked about, and now we are talking about it on global platforms, not only local platforms, I think really we have changed. Like the mindset, there's a shift on the ground there. Now we are trying to see it as something normal. And I hope that we continue normalizing albinism and providing reasonable accommodations where need be. Yeah, and I hope that too. Let's talk about climb for albinism. You, I mean, six women with albinism from across Africa scale up Mount Kilimanjaro, Africa's highest mountain. Why was so important to climb the Kilimanjaro for you? It was so important for me first to show the resilience, 
the power and the capability that persons with albinism have. You know, like our footsteps in that mountain, like every step we took towards the top was a step to zero stigma and discrimination on albinism. So it was really more personal than we've climbed real like mountains in our lives through stigma, discrimination, being attacked, and all those kind of mountains we have climbed. Eh? So a physical climb for me was quite symbolic to just show the world that actually the potential in us is unlimited. And the fact that women did it, you know, like women are the givers of life. So it was really like a symbol of we did not just do it for ourselves as the six women with albinism. We did it for generations and generations of persons with albinism. And then the choice of Kilimanjaro, you see the issue of the stigma, like I told you, is a very has an African face. And talking about condemning the violations and talking about our resilience on Africa's highest point is symbolic that everybody in the continent had us. And everybody in the continent then is able to put their literal efforts to stop the stigma. Are you going to do it again? I am not sure when I will do it, but it is something in my thoughts. One thing I can say, like, uh, the first ever climb for albinism by women only and by only persons with albinism for us was a very intimate affair too because it felt like a safe space for us to share our mountains. You know, like just climbing that mountain with people who have walked the same journey you have walked was so personal and special. It was safe to talk about all our fears, all our, you know, all that kind of thing. Like it felt very safe to share this journey with those special women. But now future claims for albinism, we know, yes, the advocacy and the stigma cannot be fought by us alone. We only started the journey of climbing for albinism, you see? So future climbs will also include other people like you who would want to see the stigma stop. So future climbs will not only be just by persons with albinism, it's going to be a climb for albinism by everybody who would want to see zero stigma towards persons with albinism. So that being the case then, it's really like an open field that needs a lot of planning and strategizing so that we have a bigger impact. So this is something in line, but be sure between 2018 and the next five years, we will have the second claim for albinism. And we hope as you're putting your efforts in broadcasting our experiences, you'll also be able to join us to stop the stigma. That'll be awesome, and yes. I will I will gladly go up up the mountain with you. Thank you, um, if, if it's possible. So just let me know the days you're going to go up. Just let me know, and I'm will join maybe with my family. Yes, we can do you it see? all together. Solidarity. You know? Yes, of course, definitely. And solidarity is like now in times of COVID really important. Yeah. How is Kenya dealing with it, and how is the impact it has on albinos? So COVID, wow, I know it's it's been a hard, hard year, I can say. You know what started like something we were trying to provide relief and emergency response and trying to cushion our beneficiaries from the impacts of COVID has gone beyond, you know, like a temporary solution 
And I think for me, this has really meant even our work, how we deliver to our communities has really changed. So before we would go to like communities and raise awareness there, now we normally run like understanding albinism sessions remotely because we have albinism ambassadors in different parts of the country. We use them as the people on the ground and they project the work that we are doing or we do the awareness trainings via broadcasted Zoom, you see. We also were able to now launch an Albinism and I magazine that is a publication. We are doing the second publication now so that even as much as we can't get to the people because of the COVID movement restrictions, uh, the information that needs to go out there still goes out there, you see. Then also, yeah, that's really important. Yes, and also now the mobile application. Regardless of where you are globally, you can get albinism information on your fingertips. You know, like I think like ninety nine percent of the world population has access to a mobile phone. So this has really changed. The impacts are really hard because you see when I talked about the economic empowerment, you can already understand that most of our beneficiaries are people who are living below the poverty line. And now the same people are the ones who are worst hit by COVID because their livelihoods were somehow cut short. So it's really hard and really like we are using the learnings from COVID to remodel our approach and how we approach economic empowerment for future programs. Mm. No, but you're doing you're doing a great job and you are this person with this power and with this energy and I'm sure you are going to, to go through without without problem. Thank you. Diane, there was this situation just before you went to Kerala. You were passing by on a street and somebody tells something about walking money or something like that. Can you tell us this story? Uh, that's the story of people with albinism like every day. Like imagine that was like 10 years ago. It still happens today. There are people like the street language is PESA. PESA is money. So in most times when you pass like, especially like downtown or places, you know, like bus stands and where you'll still hear somebody shout, there goes money, there goes millions. So it's really dehumanizing because you know the the fact that you know why they are calling you money is because they can sell you for money to be used for rituals is really, really like the greatest dishonor to persons in albinism. So this is really like something that still happens to date here. It is the realities of persons in albinism. And I just hope that this reality changes. How do you feel about the situation of people with albinism in Kenya? I'm talking about feelings now, you know. So uh, I would say mixed feelings, actually. Mixed feelings for those that are at a privilege to be more urban, in urban setup because it's safer. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But also sad for those that live in the margins of the society and they are the majority and because that is where the stigma, the cross-border trade of body parts and human trafficking are very likely. So it's really uncertain. I would say it's an uncertain feeling, yeah. Yeah. Listening to you and everything you were telling, it sounds as if you and all people with albinism in general have every reason to be living in a constant state of fear. Do you feel safe, Jane? Not always. 
I am always doing like environmental scanning and analysis. Like I am always suspicious. Like I am very careful who I talk to and who talks to me, whether offline or online. And I try to maintain a sort of a distance. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so that I also don't expose myself into danger because the reality is there. Like, I have also been lucky to work across border. I have worked on albinism in Tanzania too. So I know the realities of people with albinism. I know my friends who have survived the attacks. I know my friends who have also lost their lives to the attacks. So the reality is that I could be next. So that means you like being more careful and vigilant and maintaining more close-knit circles of people you can trust. And that is the message to like all persons with albinism. That's the only way to go. Jane, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for accepting the invitation. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much too for the platform and I hope a lot of people are able to continue raising awareness on albinism and even continuing to disseminate information about the truths and the facts about albinism. Our website is still very active with up-to-date information. It's positiveexposure-kenya.org. They can also download the albinism and I app on their on their Android phones and they'll be able to get a lot of information about albinism and it's both global and local so it's open to everyone People with albinism have been persecuted, killed and dismembered and graves of albinos dug up and desecrated in some East African countries. At the same time people with albinism have also been ostracized and even killed for exactly the opposite reason because they are also presumed to be cursed and bring bad luck So, if you are eager to support the people sticking their necks out in this particular topic, go to positiveexposure-kenya.org and work with Jane and her team, volunteer or donate. You'll find the stories of the Cantari alumni or the giraffe heroes, the stories of people sticking their necks out every Tuesday on Spotify, iTunes, our homepage and every other place where you get your podcast. And if you subscribe, you don't have to look out for us, we'll be coming to you. If there is a friend, a family member or someone you know who is doing a great work in the community, someone sticking her his its next out, just nominate this person as a giraffe hero or tell us about them. Come and visit us at giraffe-heroes.eu. Next week, our podcast is going to be all about books. We're going to be talking about a mobile library for children and adults, both with and without disabilities in rural Thailand, founded by a Japanese woman who happens to be blind. My name is Jean-Pierre Aguiar-Durañona and I hope you join us also on our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. But more importantly, I hope you join us again next week. Stick your neck out. The weekly podcast of the Giraffe Heroes Foundation.